Well, thank you, Chuck. Um, thank you for the kind introduction and much appreciated for the invitation to come back and be with you. I did one of these for you all about two years ago. It was over, it was over lunch and they served Dickie's barbecue back there. And it was, just, I thought this, I got one foot in glory here. <laughs> Because uh, these, I, I concluded these are my kind of people. Uh, so even though I've lived in California for the last 30 plus years, I grew up in Texas. And so this is sort of, you know, this is like coming back to my roots. So this is delightful to be with you. Uh, as some of you know who've been reading Body and Soul for this week uh, while you're here, I just want to let you know that the, the, the part that was clear is the part that I did. <laughs> Moreland's part is the part that's obtuse. You know, I've, I've take every opportunity to remind him of that. One, one of the initial reviewers of that book actually made precisely that point, and I've never let him forget it. Uh, but I have, I've done bioethics for a, for a long time. Uh, that's been on my primary field. In the last few years, I've shifted a bit. I've, I've, it's, I've found it's, it's challenging to balance two pretty different fields at the same time and to do justice to both. So I've had seasons in which I've majored in one and minored in the other. Uh, and this is a season where I'm more majoring in matters connected to business and economics. Uh, part of the reason for that is that my interest in bioethics, uh, God in his providence had a, <clears throat> I think a very strange way of allowing that material to follow me home uh, through a battle with infertility, walking through terminal illnesses with our parents and genetic testing for my wife, um, I just decided I, I, I need something else to follow me home, preferably that's economics related. Uh, so I think, uh, you know, I, I thought about going for the prosperity gospel. That I don't think that was going to fly. But uh, economics, I think, would be the, sort of the next best thing on that. But I've been teaching business ethics in our business school for the last 25 years or so. And I'm around business students who are wrestling with this material about economics. I'm around seminary students, the next generation of pastors, who I'm desperately trying to persuade that this is important and worth considering. You know, it's one thing to do to uh, talk to, especially the next generation of pastors, about a theology of work and get pastors to see that, uh, you know, uh, d doing what they can to equip the, the men and women they serve in their churches in the majority of their lives is actually a really good stewardship thing to do. Rather than preparing them for just what they're going to do in a small minority of their lives, which is when they're in their church building. But rather, if we can, if we can equip our pastors to address what people are going to do with the vast majority of their waking hours and show what the Bible teaches, in my view, that, it's, it is a, it, it, that all of what takes place in the workplace is full-time service to Christ. They're just different arenas of service. Uh, so that, you know, when I ask my, I ask my business students, I'll say, how many of you are in full-time ministry? And all of you should raise your hands because they're just different arenas of service. Uh, and so I tell, I tell my seminary students who come to me and say, well, you know, Dr. Ray, I'm so excited. I left my business to go serve the Lord full-time. And I said, well, what did you think you had been doing while you were in business? Um, and so rec I, I recognize that that, you know, a theology of work and vocation is central to this. If we don't have that straight, <clears throat> then I'm not sure the rest of this matters. Uh, so, but I did that the last time I was here. So if you weren't in the doctoral program at that time or didn't get to hear that, I'll trust that that's available to you uh, in some other form. I have written on that 
in a book called Business for the Common Good that I co-authored with my colleague at Seattle Pacific University, Kenman Wong. So if you're interested in more of that, uh, I'd refer you to that. I'd be happy to take questions and, or some comments on that uh, during the question period. Uh, on, on this question of theology and economics, though, I found that this is a much tougher sell for, not so much for PhD students, but for the next generation of pastors. Uh, it's, it, sound, it feels to most pastors like this is just something, an add-on, something that maybe I read about the newspaper periodically, but I don't really have to care that much about. Now, we could spend, you know, the next, you know, probably till midnight tonight sort of walking through uh, a biblical theology of work and economics. But I've read, that's in print already, and so I'll touch on a couple things just to highlight but that's in print in a book that I did with my late uh, colleague, Austin Hill, called The Virtues of Capitalism. So I'm not going to go over that in particular, since that's available to you in, in print. What I'd like to do is to, to do two things primarily that are not in print, at, the, at least not at the moment. One is to, to further persuade you of why this is important and give you some things that you can take into your local church, into the students that you're with, uh, to persuade them that wrestling with this intersection between theology and economics matters. Right? The second thing I want to do is address what I think is the most, the most pressing and acute moral and theological issue that's been brought to bear on our economic system to date and will be very prominent in the next six weeks of the presidential campaign, and that is the issue of economic inequality. So I want to speak to that specifically. Okay? So let me, let me start with this. Uh, my, my friend and, and writing partner, Austin Hill, tells the story of a conference that he attended when he was a seminary student, sponsored by the, the Acton Institute. The facilitator posed the following question. He said, can somebody name for me one area of our lives that has nothing to do with economics. The group thought for a moment, and then a student in the back sort of spoke up and said, as a Christian, I believe my eternal salvation has nothing to do with economics. Okay? And the group, I think, was a bit taken aback by that, and so the facilitator rephrased the question like this. He said, okay, let's assume you're right about that, and let's assume that one's eternal destiny has nothing to do with work and economics, which in my view is a debatable assumption, but we'll assume that. Can somebody name a second area of life that has nothing to do with economics? He went on to suggest that every facet of our earthly lives is impacted on some level by both economic activity and economic conditions. Okay, now think, think for a minute, how would you answer the question that this facilitator posed to the group. Can you think of an area of our lives not impacted by work and economics? I would actually debate the notion that our eternal salvation has nothing to do with economics. Since the Bible, some of the key metaphors in the scripture for our salvation are described in explicitly economic terms. For example, in Romans 4, when discussing the notion of justification by faith, salvation is described in terms of an accounting ledger in which our sin is canceled on the debit side and the righteousness of Christ is credited to our account 
as a result of his death. As a result of this, of this economic transaction, essentially, we are declared justified or acquitted from the guilt of our sin. Like further, when Jesus declared that it is finished on the cross, as you may be aware, that's also an accounting term that literally is rendered, that you would stamp on a ledger, paid in full. Okay? The intersection of morality, of morality, theology, and economics comes about primarily because economics, like our political life, is fundamentally about how we as communities order our lives together. Much of how we order our lives together in community has significant moral overtones. How we decide and on what basis the distribution of the burdens and benefits of a society. Those are economic questions that are fundamentally moral questions. I've, and I think this explains in large part the passion that comes out on, on both sides of many economic issues, in addition to what I would also be just admit is just blatant self-interest as well. Okay? Now, what I, what I want to do just for the next few minutes is to give you some additional reasons why I think this, this area of theology and economics matters so much. And I, I found what I just stated about uh, economics having a moral dimension to it, I found is not enough to hook my students, particularly the next generation of pastors. But the, the, the additional points I'm going to make here in the next few minutes, I think I found to be very helpful, and, our, and my students have found this to be very compelling reasons why this stuff matters. So it seems to me one of the most obvious ways to connect economics and pastoral ministry comes out of the specifically economic context of the Bible. The Bible directly addresses economic life in numerous places in both Testaments. In addition, much of its teaching is set in the specific economic context of the ancient world. Though it is true that the fundamental issues of economics in the Bible concern the state of a person's heart, in fact, I would say that the, the, the predominant vices that are used as, as critical points of our economic system are human vices, not necessarily vices restricted to any particular economic system. The, and it is also true that the condition of the heart has not changed since the Bible was written. It's naive to teach and preach the Bible without taking into account the profound differences in economic life between the ancient world and the modern industrial information age economy. Here's reason number one. One of the most important reasons for pastors to be economically literate is so that they can preach and teach and apply the Bible accurately. In particular, this is crucial that they apply the Bible's teaching on economic life clearly and without misunderstanding the author's intention. For example, it is not uncommon to hear application uh, on, on subjects such as the year of Jubilee as requiring a wholesale redistribution of wealth, or to hear the church's sharing of goods in common in Acts chapter 2 as a reference to some sort of enforced redistribution of income. Some of the criticisms, I would suggest, of our market-based system are misreadings of the Bible due to a failure to take some of these differences into account. These differences, for example, help account for the stark statement of Jesus that is e that it's easier for a rich man to enter the kingdom than a camel to go through the eye of a needle. This is not, I think, primarily because of the temptations to, the, to wealth 
that we normally associate with wealth today. This is primarily because of a, what's called a zero-sum view of economics, in which, there's a, in which it was believed that there was a fixed economic pie, and if you got a bigger piece, then somebody else got a smaller one. Okay? That zero-sum view of economic life characterized the ancient world. Okay? But it's definitely not true of our modern industrial information age economy, where every time a profit is made, the size of the pie actually gets a little bit larger. We should further distinguish between greed and self-interest in, con in contrast to their frequent conflation. Self-interest is nowhere condemned in the Bible. Rather, it's upheld as a mandate to care for oneself and one's dependents. What is condemned is self-interest at the expense of or the neglect of others. The zero-sum view of, of economic life in the ancient world meant that one's pursuit of self-interest often, I'd say, I'd say as, a, as a norm, did come at someone else's expense, making it much more difficult to distinguish between that and greed than today, where it's much easier, in fact, I would say it's more the norm, that one can do well financially and do good for the community at the same time. A misunderstanding of this is often at the heart of the demand, and watch how often you hear this in the presidential campaign. Uh, it's at the heart of the demands for business to give something back to the community, as though the nature of their business is somehow value extraction, not value addition to the community. As I would argue that business in general, if it's going to be profitable, has to be value enhancing for the communities that they serve. Now, some also reflect a misunderstanding of economics, since, such as the common statement, which I guarantee you, you will hear regularly in the next six weeks, that the rich are getting richer and the poor are getting poorer. Such statements are often read between the lines as the rich are getting richer and are causing the poor to get poorer, reflecting again a zero-sum view of economic life that was characteristic of the ancient world, but not applicable to most of the global economy today. Here, a second reason economics is important, and this is specifically for those of you that are working in theology, is that economics is part of the doctrine of creation, specifically the dominion mandate of Genesis 1. Sir Brian Griffiths suggests that the dominion mandate suggests what he calls, quote, responsible wealth creation. That is, human beings using the wisdom of God that's engraved into his creation and made available by means of general revelation and common grace, exercise the creativity, innovation, and entrepreneurial traits that are part of human beings that are being made in the image of God. For example, I have, a, I have a longtime family friend. He's chairman of the board of a tech company. It's a, a Caltech professor who invented this piece of technology for which he won a Nobel Prize. And being a traditional academic, winning the Nobel Prize was the top of the pile. And he's, he's done not really interested in doing anything else with the discovery. In fact, he wants to just give it away. My friend, who's the chairman of the board for his company, has had the hardest time getting this full-blown academic to, to, to realize that the most productive way to get the technology used by the people who would be the most inclined to use it most productively would be to start a company and to sell it because people, the people who buy it will be investing in it. They have skin in the game and will be, have the most incentives in place to use it the most productively. 
It provides the best, most efficient way of, the, of distributing the technology to the people who can best put it to work. Now, in my, in my view, uh, th this, I think, is really important for our, our, our theological understanding of the dominion mandate and what that has what that implies about economic life and economic structures for today. So I, I would encourage those of you that are working in theology and are looking for topics to work on, uh, I, there, there's not much out there on this. This is, I think, very fertile ground on this. Now here's a second reason this is important. A basic understanding of economics is also important so that churches can productively help the poor. In his best-selling book on this, When Helping Hurts, the authors maintain that an understanding of economics is important to ensure that help actually helps the poor become self-supporting instead of more dependent. One of the reasons why tri literally trillions in foreign aid have been so effective, and the poor around the world uh, are, are, are still poor, is because of a neglect of common sense economics, that incentives matter that work and exchange are fruitful, and that there are conditions that must be met before there's fertile ground for the poor to become self-supporting, such as things like the rule of law, encouragement of creativity, innovation, and access to capital. This is becoming, a, I think, a growing trend in things like microenterprise and uh, the business's mission movement in other parts of the world. Finally, I'd suggest th the other reason this is important is that economic matters are integral to human flourishing. I have found that the church leaders who best understand this are those who serve in economically challenged, if not depressed, communities. My friends who, my, who pastor in the inner city totally get this. They understand about how their discipleship has, has to have an economic component. There's, there are character traits that relate to someone's ability to attract and hold down a job, for example, that are crucial to somebody becoming more like Christ and producing a life that's consistent with the biblical model for flourishing. I think they, they, I think they get it because this overall flourishing is harder to accomplish in some of those communities. We, I think in, in many of the communities we, we serve in, we take economic matters for granted because they're not an issue. Uh, I mean, I, n none, of, none of us in this room, I suspect, goes to bed hungry. Uh, my, my friend Chris Brooks, who pastors in the inner city of Detroit, deals constantly with families whose kids go to bed hungry every night. And they don't, and they don't, they don't have the skills that are necessary and the character traits necessary to, to attract and hold down a job. In fact, he challenges them with things like the fruit of the Spirit and to put that in specifically employment terms. Well, he makes a really interesting argument. How would, you like, how would you like to work in an environment that is characterized by people exhibiting the deeds of the flesh as opposed to the fruit of the Spirit? And he maintains, and I think correctly, that adopting the character traits that actually result from following Christ make you more employable, better able to hold a job, and more likely to encourage human flourishing. Now, I, I, would, I would caution us against the Gnosticism 
that in my experience often pervades our evangelical churches. I haven't been in a Southern Baptist church for a while, so I can't speak to that per se. But my folks were in one for a long time, and I know it was true of their church. It pervades our churches with the insistence that the immaterial is all that matters. And that the world makes no difference because it will be destroyed at Jesus' return. Making matters of culture and especially economics analogous to rearranging deck chairs on the Titanic. I would say neither of these things are true theologically. I would argue that there is just as much hope for the body as there is for the soul. In fact, we will be embodied for most of eternity. I admit we'll have, as I read the New Testament, an intermediate stage where we will be disembodied. But for most of eternity, we will be embodied souls in resurrection bodies analogous to the way we are today. In fact, I think the Incarnation by itself affirmed, in my view, we don't need much else besides the Incarnation to affirm that the body matters to God. Further, the world will be transformed, not destroyed, when Jesus returns. Paul insists, for example, in Romans 8, that all of creation is groaning for its redemption, which suggests that at some point all of creation will be redeemed. Thus, our salvation is not solely for our, own, for our own souls, but also for the life of the world. I would, I, would, I would caution us against what I call a two-chapter view of biblical history, where I don't know about you, in your, if you had a, have a seminary degree, but in, in my, I went to a, a wonderful evangelical seminary that will remain unnamed, not my current employer, uh, but I was theologically malformed. Because I was only taught two of the four chapters of biblical history. I missed the bookends. I missed creation and consummation. And I got, I got a lot of great stuff on fall and redemption in the middle. But the bookends are crucial to this. Because at the bookends, work and economics are a part of life in paradise at both of those bookends. And the world matters because the dominion mandate was given before the fall, not after it. Work was ordained before the fall, not after it. And, and I, this is a tough one that when you have to break this to workplace folks. But when the Lord returns, you will still be working. Okay, I'm, I'm sorry to break that to you. Uh, the workplace folks in my church, I thought were going to throw me out of the building when I mentioned that to them. But, you know, the prophets talk about beating swords into what? Plowshares, which suggests that when the kingdom comes in its fullness, we will still be working. Okay? Now, to be fair, I'm not, I don't, I'm not so sure about the getting a paycheck part, but I suspect that when the Lord returns, we will still have trade and exchange and a medium of exchange. It's just that economic life will be free from sin and corruption. Although, to be fair, I don't know about you, I'm having, I still have a hard time getting my arms completely around what that might look like. Uh, now, I, I think these I, these, I would suggest, are some additional reasons why this is important and why economics matters. Okay? Now, let, let, me, let, me, let me shift gears here and uh, tackle what I would... I would consider to be the, the most significant moral and theological question being addressed in, uh, in this area today. I will spend the next, the next few
few minutes just reflecting on economic inequality, if I might. Then if, if we have time, we'll return back to some of the biblical teaching, uh, and then we'll, you can raise any questions you want on this. You, I, I know you've, you've heard it, uh, the charge that the, our market system is, in, is dangerously increasing levels of inequality between the very rich and the very poor. Right? I think it's important, I think, at the very beginning, to get some facts on the table about economic inequality, just so we're all playing with the same set of facts. I debated this with a sociologist colleague of mine a few months ago, and I prefaced this by saying, we're all entitled to our own opinion on this, but nobody's entitled to their own set of facts. Right? So here's what we know about economic inequality. First, there is, there is a lot of movement among income groups, and this is in the United States today. This, is, this, this may be completely different in the developing world, but among, in the U.S., there's a lot of movement. Over a person's lifetime, which they say is 40, 44 years from age 21 to 65, 12% are in the top 1% of income earners for one year or more. 39% right? of people in the, in the United States are in the top 5% of income earners for one year or more. And 73% are in the top 20% for one year or more. Okay. Now on the downside, 54% experience poverty or near poverty at least once during their lifetime. Okay. Graduate school, for example. <laughs> Just saying. Uh, if you look at the top 400 taxpayers between 1997 and 2009, only 2% were in the top 400 for 10 years or more. 2%. So there's, there is a lot of movement. The, the, the 1% is not a fixed group. Neither is the top 5% or the top 20% or even the top half. None of those are fixed groups. Further, the, the, the wealthy who are, who are in the top, you know, 1% to 5% today are much less likely to have inherited their wealth than they were 30 years ago. The percentage of people that grew, grew up wealthy fell from 60% of the, of the top 5% in 1982 to 32% in 2011. So that's, that's, that's declined by almost a factor of two. Right? So far, far more people today who are at the top have earned their way to the top as opposed to inherited or invested their way to the top. Okay? Now further, most data about income inequality is portrayed as pre-tax and pre-transfers. So pre-tax and pre-any kind of assistance or welfare. Okay? So the, the measures that have been, have been put into place to actually help those who are more at the bottom are, no, are not reflected in the data on income inequality. It's straight based on, on what people earn. Okay? So let's, I mean, for one, I guess let's be, let's be clear about the facts on this. 
further thing factually, just so you're aware, e equality has actually been the, the overwhelming norm throughout most of the history of civilization. In fact, I would suggest that for, for most, until, until probably the last 200 years, the vast majority of people have been equal, that is, equally poor, wretched, and miserable. And generally, though it's not, it's not always the case, but generally, wherever markets have been introduced, middle classes have been created, and economic mobility has, has come into the culture for the first time, which by, by definition creates different levels of inequality. But we would say that's, that's a good inequality because people are, because there's evidence of mobility. And when people have economic mobility, they have hope, which is, again, crucially important. All right, now, I, I would, I'd want to make the argument, bo both theologically and practically, that income inequality per se is not necessarily something to lose sleep over. Now, it can be but not necessarily. And here's why. For one, natural inequalities, whether, whether you believe this on a naturalistic basis through evolution or you believe it on a theistic basis through special creation, not really, that's, that's not really relevant for this point. But natural inequalities that result from natural endowments are not generally something that we lose a lot of sleep over. Now, I look, at, I look at most people in this room. Uh, I don't see too many candidates for the NBA in this room. Right? Now, if you have been a basketball player, you, you're probably a little, sir, a little taller than the average person here. Uh, I'd probably give you the best shot at it. Uh, but I know that, that may mean we're in real trouble then. Uh, I, 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 I swim for exercise. And it, do, it doesn't matter when I started swimming or how hard I trained, I was never going to be an Olympic swimmer because I'm not a genetic freak of nature like Michael Phelps is. I mean, who can, who can do this like he does with his arms and, and reach around and, you know, scratch? He, he can scratch his, 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 other sh his right shoulder with his left hand, with his right arm. Right? We generally don't lose a lot of sleep over natural inequalities. Okay? Now, second, I think we, we recognize that some inequalities are the result of a person's choices. Okay? Artists. I happen to have three of them among my, all three of my children. Okay? I got one making a living and another one on the way, and I'm worried about the third one. Uh, but artists, people who work for NGOs or nonprofits, uh, Seminary professors, I just had to throw that in there. Uh, we, we, I, I say we, we experienced economic inequality because of, because of conscious, mostly good choices that we've made to pursue things that are, are important in other ways than financial. But inequality also results from choices that are not so good. The decision to have kids out of wedlock is probably the biggest predictor of poverty. The decision to forego education, which is probably the second biggest predictor of poverty. Uh, or, or kids that get in, you know, in trouble with the law, or whatever, whatever choices that are, what are made. Sometimes those are hard, difficult things to say to people, 
But sometimes economic inequality results from choices that we would say are not in accordance with a life of discipleship and following Christ. Now, inequality can be a moral and theological issue in a couple different instances. One is when it's the result of injustice. I remember hearing Jim Wallace uh, say before the halls of Congress that God hates inequality. I thought that's a hard one to sustain because God provides all of us with our natural endowments. I think that that's a hard one. What God hates is inequality that's the result of injustice. That's what's in the best tradition of our Old Testament prophets who, who routinely get after the nation of Israel for their economic oppression of the poor. See, I'd say it's unjust that a child gets stuck in a failing school simply due to his or her zip code and inequality results. It's unjust if serious illness wipes out a family financially. It's unjust if someone is denied an opportunity or a hiring or a promotion due to issues of race or gender. So when inequality is the result of injustice, then I think that that's something that we ought to take heed to. But I would suggest inequality is not always the result of injustice. Inequality can be the result of disparities in effort, in preparation, in execution. Uh, but it can, it can also be the result of injustice. Second, inequality is an issue when people lose hope in socioeconomic mobility. If they feel stuck or if they feel like the system is rigged against them. See, this is what life, this is what life was like during biblical times. People were stuck in the, in the station in life that they were born into. In fact, in biblical times, you don't, there are no rags-to-riches stories. There's nobody who, who starts out penniless and climbs to the top of the pile. Those, those didn't happen in biblical times. In fact, think about, think about it like this. Why is there so little discussion of ambition in the Scripture? I know of one place in the scripture that directly addresses the subject of ambition. And that's in 1 Timothy 3.1, where, where Paul says it's a good thing to aspire to be, what? An overseer in the church. There is virtually nothing in the scripture that I'm aware of that speaks to the ambition to raise your socioeconomic standing. Why? Because it was impossible to do in that system without fatal and faith-destroying compromises to one's faith. This is what we mean by a zero-sum economic arrangement. That, my, that in, the, in biblical times, someone else's prosperity normally occurred at the expense of someone else. Okay? For, for example, uh, mo most people, it seems to me, who were rich in biblical times became that way through some sort of immoral means, theft, extortion, abuse of power, oppression, something like that that the prophets routinely condemned. There were very few morally legitimate avenues to accumulate wealth in biblical times and very few morally legitimate avenues to exercise a godly ambition to improve your socioeconomic standing. It's that the structures weren't in place to do that. 
And again, I think this is why the Bible says so little about ambition. And, and I think this goes a long way in explaining some of the Scripture's skepticism about the accumulation of wealth. Right? It was done so, I think, most often through morally illicit means. Now, the third, I think, and we'll, we'll close with this, uh, and this, I think, is directly gets us into the political arena. But I think a third reason that inequality is problematic is when people use their wealth to buy inordinate political influence, to continue a, a system that they have already bought and rigged in their favor. Uh, now, I, in my view, it's ironic, and I think a, a self-defeating solution it's ironic that the proposed solution to economic inequality is greater government control over the economy, which in my view just creates more and more avenues for people to purchase political influence over economic matters. Uh, now, this is not to say I, I don't believe that markets are always self-correcting. I'm not a market fundamentalist. I think Alan Greenspan was wrong about a lot of things, um, not, not to mention his failure to foresee the the collapse in 2007 through 9. But I think the, the notion that markets are always self-correcting, I think, is, is a, a problem theologically because it ignores the, the human being's innate inclination to sin and use whatever means are possible to pursue their own economic self-interest. This is why Michael Novak, for example, in his classic work, The Spirit of Democratic Capitalism, argued for a tri a, a three-legged stool, that's a triangle, isn't it? Where you have the, the economic system, but it's balanced by the, what he called the moral cultural system, which provides most of the moral norms. And then if, if that fails to provide appropriate restraints, then the political system steps in. And the frequency with which the political system and the law have to step into economic matters is an indicator of how... Uh, how impotent the moral cultural system has become in regulating economic life. Uh, so I think, that's, I think that's, an, that's an issue with inequalities, I think definitely problematic here. I would say here's the, the tagline that I would use to respond to the charge that inequality is a problem. I would, I would put it like this, that it, it, it's missing the target because the issue is not inequality. The issue is insufficiency. The problem is not that some have unequal amounts. The problem is that some don't have enough for full human flourishing. That's what matters. It's poverty, not inequality, in my view, that's the central issue. And I would suggest that by shooting at inequality, we're, we're actually aiming at the wrong target. Because, by reduce, because most of the solutions for economic inequality involve removing incentives from some of the most productive people in our culture who happen to be the most significant job creators among us. Uh, so I think there's, there's a lot to think about with this, this perception that, that economic inequality is this huge overriding issue that's dominating everything else. In economic matters, watch how often this comes up in the presidential speeches and debates uh, in, the next, in the next few weeks.